Okay, today is June the 29th. June is nearly gone. Half this year is just about gone. Can you believe it? Wow. Okay, let's prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And during that time we have the opportunity to name privately God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day of your grace, of your provision. We are your children, and you provide us with everything we need, not only to survive, but indeed flourish even in the devil's world. We have nothing to fear. We have everything to look forward to. You have given us a great system of perception, everything that we need in order to grow in grace and knowledge. We have to add our own positive volition and our concentration as we're filled with the Holy Spirit to drink in your word in full measure. So we pray that you will help us do that this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. We're plowing new ground right from the beginning this evening. We haven't gone over this scripture yet. And we're going to go over just part of it to begin with because you'll note that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9 that you have a sentence ending in that verse. And we'll go over that, and then we'll start again after that verse, starting in verse uh, 10b. Well, the, the, the Scripture goes from verse 9 and 10, but it's in verse 10 that you have a sentence ending and another sentence beginning. And so we'll start again with a new Sentence, because we're not going by verses, we're going by sentences as they are in the Greek. So don't let that throw you. Verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for yourselves are taught, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Then it continues in verse 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we command you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. So those are two long sentences that we have. We start with 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. Here are our notes for that. And we start out with the first phrase, now as to, the Revised Standard Version says, but as touching. This is an introduction to what is about to be said. The first word is the conjunction de in the Greek. It's actually a post-positive conjunction. It means it never comes first in the Greek. It's always the second word, but you always read it first. That's what they call a post-positive conjunction. And that's typical of de, D-E. Nearly every time you see it in this sense, it's the second word in the Greek, but it's always translated as the first word in the English. It changes our subject from sexual immorality to brotherly love. Remember, we were on that sexual immorality for a while. But now with this uh, word, de, I think it would be better translated as it was in the RSV, Revised Standard Version, as but. Because now the, the context is changing. The subject matter is changing. But as concerning, then we have the love of the brethren. Love of the brethren in the Greek is one word, and you probably recognize that word. Philadelphia is translated love of the brethren. It's a noun. It is the genitive singular feminine. This is a compound word formed by using philos, P-H-I-L-O-S, meaning love, personal love, plus adelphos, brother, and is used five times in the New Testament. But before I go into those five uses, I was just curious because we have the word uh, Philadelphia. And I thought, well, hmm, uh, how is this word used or how, how is the city? You all know the, or have heard of the city of Philadelphia. So I thought to myself, okay, uh, how is the city of Philadelphia holding up to its name? And so I looked it up. Uh, the city is nearly one and a half million. One million four hundred ninety-five thousand some odd. There was 348 murders there. These statistics are from 2003. And I looked up a later statistic from 2006 and it's over 400 now. So there's over a murder a day there. Uh, forcible rape is uh, 1,004, um, about three a day, something like that. Robbery, 9,600 and some odd. Aggravated assault, not, about 9,500. Uh, burglary, over 10,000. Larceny or theft here. Is nearly 38,000. Car theft, 13, right, right at 14,000. That's a year. And then I thought, okay, well, how does that work as far as the national average? Here that is down here. You have, it's three, over three times the national average in murder. Forcible rape, it's nearly two times the national rate. Robbery, it's nearly three times, 2.94 times the national average. Aggravated assault, it's 1.78 times the national average. I don't think they're doing so good on 
upholding the name of their city, city of brotherly love. Then I thought this was interesting too. This is compared to Houston. Philadelphia crime rates compared to Houston. So you have the blue here is the Philadelphia rate. The gold here, or yellow, is Houston. And this kind of gray area is the national average. So you can see how much higher the national, I mean, the murder rate in Philadelphia is more than Houston. And Houston has nothing to crow about here either, do they? Here's the national average way down here. Rape, same thing. Robbery, pretty much the same. Way up there. Assault way up there. These are all the aggressive person-to-person -person more type um, bird, uh, uh, crimes. Then over here you have theft and Houston starts to climb up where it's not actual person-to-person -person crime. When it comes to burglary, theft, and auto theft, Houston leads the bunch in all three. Even higher than Philadelphia in these and quite a bit higher than the national average. So the city of brotherly love is not a city of brotherly love, is it? I just thought that was interesting because I, I, I knew, and this isn't as bad as some. I think if you go to Detroit or Chicago, uh, those are much worse. You know, I don't even know how they can keep up with the all the paperwork that it takes in order to keep up with these crimes, much less be able to analyze them, research them, and catch the bad guys. That's, that's just uh, beyond me. Okay, so let me get back over here to our notes. So we are pretty, it's pretty safe to say that the city of brotherly love is no longer the city of brotherly love. So I said it's used um, five more times, or five times in the New Testament. That's counting our scripture here. And this is going to give us a little bit better idea about this love. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Now this word brotherly affection is philos. P-H-I-L-O-S-T-E-R-G-O-S. And it's a noun, genitive singular feminine. And this is a natural family love or tender affection. This word, uh, stergos, S-T-E-R-G-O-S, is another Greek word for love that's not found in the New Testament. That word itself, by itself, Family-type love is not found in the New Testament. It's that word stergos, S-T-E-R-G-O-S. It's loving with natural affection that characterizes members of the same family. And I got that from Spiros, Zodiades, the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament. So that is another word that is translated into English, brotherly love, but it's a family-type love. And it's... Just the word by itself isn't there, but we have the brotherly affection or brotherly love in some. Here's the word there, storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, refers to family love, the love of parents for their children. This word is absent from our New Testament, although a related word is translated kindly affection in Romans 12.10. Uh, 
The next place that word shows up is in Hebrews 13.1. It says, let brotherly love continue. That continue there is a Greek word meno. It's a verb, present active imperative. It means to remain, abide, and continue. So, here we are, brothers and sisters in the Lord, even though we don't go and call each other brother, brother John or brother Bob or sister Jane. Uh, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, but I don't think... Uh, well, maybe you do, but I never called any of my sisters or brothers, uh, I don't say Sister Fabian. If she did, she would say, what? <laughs> she doesn't call me Brother Mike. I mean, we know that we're brother and sister. No, no point in saying it, so there's no point in us saying it either. But we are in the same family, the royal family. We have the same father, our heavenly father. So we are brothers and sisters. And our relationships with each other is not one that we have much latitude because the Bible commands us to have this brotherly love towards one another. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren. There again, you have brotherly love. This is an adjective. And it, then after you have this in 1 Peter 1.22, it says, True for, uh, for truth, your love for truth, your obedience for a sincere love of the brethren. That's very love. And then the very, the very next word is love, but that's not the same word. Brotherly love is a compound from philos and anthropos. But, here we have now love, agape love. You see that? A sincere love from the brethren. Then we have agapao, which is an aorist active imperative. This is telling us we are not only to have a brotherly love towards each other, we are to have an unconditional love towards each other. Now, we've already gone through nine floors of the divine domain at least once. Some of you have heard it twice or more. And so you already recognize that if you're going to have a consistent brotherly love towards those who are fellow believers, you're going to have to have some agapao, or, or uh, uh, the verb meaning agape-type love. In other words, unconditional love. That's what supports and fortifies the phileo-type love. So you have both type in this 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. So it says, love one another earnestly from the heart. And I think that means not only are we to love one another from the dominant portion of our soul, which is called the heart, but when it says earnestly, it means it should be more than just an academic exercise. We should really care about each other. That's one way that you can tell a church is on target or not by the love that the believers show to each other. And when there gets to be factions and schisms and cliques and this type of thing, the church is in trouble. Because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it tells us you can have everything going on, but if you don't have love for each other, you're just a noisy, clanking symbol. Can you imagine? You know, the symbol is fine in its place. I mean, we have marches and we have things, and bang, they're at the right place. But when you just take a cymbal and you're playing it, I mean, you can play a, a, a guitar, you can play a horn, you can play the piano, all these things. But when you have a cymbal 
and you just hear the symbol. Sounds a lot worse than that. It gets pretty grating pretty fast, doesn't it? How do how do people who <laughs> play the cymbals, how do they practice? <laughs> they think the, the violin is, is will get on your nerves. What about cymbals in the middle of the night? So that's what it's that's what we are like when we don't have this type of love. Then we have the same word again in Second Peter chapter one, verse seven and eight. It says, and in your godliness, this is a list of things that we're supposed to demonstrate, brotherly love. And in your brotherly kindness, both of these are of Philadelphia type loves. Love, and here we have, just like we had in Romans 12:10, we have agape. We had agapao in Romans 12:10. This is the noun, uh, love. This is the noun. This is the kind of love we have to have. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that verse suggest? I wasn't that long ago when I was in Second Peter. Do you remember this? What this is saying is that you can be a believer and you can be rendered useless and unfruitful. In fact, you can be living just like an unbeliever and still be a believer. This is one of these strong verses that indicate that just because you're a believer doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to act or behave like a believer. And what will it do if, you, if you're not rendering, if it renders you useless and unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? True knowledge there is epinosis knowledge. Men and women who have believed the gospel are our brothers and sisters since we all have the same heavenly Father and belong to His royal family. So this is really a church family. We don't have to be gushing over each other each time in all the pseudo names. I'm so glad that we don't call brother and sister this because I've been in churches before that when they were in church, they called each other, hello, brother Bob, hello, sister Jane, and all this. But that was the only place they did it. They go somewhere else and they never did it. And I thought, something's not right there. I mean, why would they do it one place and not do it at another place? So we can have that type of love that is required between brothers and sisters in the Lord without becoming hypocrites. It's not what we say. It's what we think and what we do and what we say to a degree, but it's not in the names we have. So then we press on. It says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. These believers had already been taught the principles concerning unconditional love to all mankind, so it wasn't necessary for them to receive another letter concerning this issue. However, there is some confusion here with 2 Peter 1.4. Go ahead and turn to 2 Peter 1.4. And keep your hand or a, a bookmark in 1 Thessalonians Five, uh, four over here. We we'll go to Second Peter because we're going to be going back and forth a little bit right here. Second Peter, chapter one, verse four. When it starts out by saying, for by these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. 
If you just go up one verse, verse 3, this is so fantastic. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. In other words, everything that we need, God has already granted to us everything pertaining to life in general, logistical grace, everything it takes in order to make it in this life, and godliness, everything of a spiritual nature. God has granted it to us. We already have it. But look what it says, through the true knowledge of Him who called us. He's granted it to us, but He's granted it to us through the true knowledge. In other words, that epinosis knowledge, that knowledge that you have understood it, you've believed it, it's been transferred into, transferred into your cardia, now it's part of you. That's how we receive everything pertaining to life and godliness. So verse 4 is saying, For by these, by what he was talking about there, he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Now, if you don't have that underlined already, where it says you might become partakers of the divine nature, underline it now. This is where the controversy comes in. A lot of people don't recognize it, but I'm bringing it out here because I've had to deal with it, and you might have to also someday. What does that verse have to do with what we just went over by saying it said, you, you have no need for anyone to write to you with regards to this brotherly uh, love business? Uh, what, is the, what is the connection here? Here's the connection. There are those who say that when you are born again, that you take on automatically the nature of God, that you have God's nature. And what is God? God is love. So that when you are born, if you're truly born again, that you will acquire this loving nature, just like God has. And if you don't have that loving nature towards others, it's a sign that either you weren't really born again to begin with, or else you were born again, but now you've lost it. You see how this plays into it? And so when we're reading over here in First Thessalonians, you have no need for anyone to write to you about being this, this brotherly love. There are those who would make the argument. The reason they didn't need to be written to about this was because they were true believers. They had God's own nature in them. So they had this natural affinity for love as God loves. And I'm telling you that's not so because let's go back to First. Uh, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, because I had you underline something that's very important. We'll go back to that, what was underlined. In order that by them you might become, really highlight that, put a star by that, might become partakers of the divine nature. What that means is in the, it's in the subjunctive mood, and it means it's only a potential. No one acquires God's nature the moment they're born again. Yes, we do have His own righteousness imputed to us, but that is not His divine nature. The things of God's nature is only a potential, and you see it right here. When I was teaching this, I did a word study of this, and the, every other part of the divine nature never related to man. The only three or four times it's used, it's always related to God. This one relates to us, but it's in the subjunctive mood. It means it's only a potential. 
And I'm telling you, when you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one day you're an unbeliever, you, you accept the gospel, then you become a believer, you're not automatically going to become a lot, a lot nicer person. Which some people think has to occur. There are a lot of things. There's over 40 things. Some say there's up to 60 things that happen to you the moment you believe in Jesus Christ that are permanent, things that God does for you. But He does not automatically give you His nature. That is something that is only a potential that is acquired over a long period of time of consistently taking in the Word. And over that long process of time, little by little, our nature, which is human nature, is overcome more and more. And see, until you're a believer, I I don't want to belabor this, but I want to make sure you understand what we've been given. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we don't lose our old sin nature. It's still there. But something happens. What happens is that the absolute power that the old sin nature had over us as an unbeliever is broken. That's what Romans 6 is all about. We were crucified with Christ. What was crucified? How are we different? We're different in that we are no longer slaves to our old sin nature. We have a power now that we had not before we believed in Christ. So now we can choose to do divine good that we couldn't do before. Because it's impossible for an unbeliever to produce divine good. All he can produce is human good, which is unacceptable, and sin. Now we can produce something that is acceptable, even rewardable, because of what God has done for us. Now that, that part has happened. We can, as a potential, acquire the divine nature But the way we do it is through studying and applying God's Word over a period of time. And that's why when someone says, well, you have no need for anyone to write to you about this love because you have God's nature. You you automatically, once you're saved, have this loving nature. Well, if that's the case, I was not saved. I can remember someone coming up to me, oh, don't ever do this. I know, I know none of you would, but uh, I was in a certain church, and I had to walk the aisle, and everybody came down and, you know, said hello and all the rest of it. And <clears throat> it was about a week after that, and I was at church. And I was being my regular tawdry self, and someone came up to me and says, oh, you can't do that anymore. Now you're a believer. And we don't act that way. And that, you talk about turning me off. Now, what the person said is true. I should have been acting differently, but it doesn't happen automatically where you do start acting differently. That only comes with spiritual growth as you study and grow over a process of time. It does not happen automatically. And some cases, when somebody comes up and says, Oh, well, you, I don't see the change in you. I don't see the fruit being developed in you. Maybe you weren't really saved after all. I can't tell you what a ghastly thing that is. First of all, it's none of their business. Second of all, what we need to do is to encourage people to get in the Word and let God do the changing. And to come up on a superficial something or other and say, Oh, well, now you can't do that anymore. 
I thought, man, what a bummer. I thought Christianity was supposed to be a good thing. I like to do what I like to do. And it wasn't, I wasn't doing something immoral. I was just cutting up being the kid. Well, I don't know if that illustrates it, but that's why up here when I'm saying there, this is a confusion with 2 Peter 1.4, because he did not have to write to them on that issue because he had already taught it. There was even evidence that they were loving one another. It didn't have anything to do with them having the divine nature. But there are people who will try to determine whether you are truly saved or not by the manifestation of your, by, in your behavior that you have the divine nature. And we don't go around, God does not give anyone the right to follow anyone else with a clipboard and try to make those kind of decisions. We'll get to that. In, well, you heard it when we were, uh, were a while ago. One of the things we get to, I think it's in verse 11, we are to mind our own business. Okay, now where are we? For you yourselves are taught by God. We have the word ami, E-I-M-I, which is a verb, present, active, indicative. We continually are being taught by God. And this word in the English, are taught by God, is one word in the uh, Greek. It's a present active indicative. It's theodidaktos. Didaktos. T-H-E-O-D-I-D-A-K-T-O-S. It's an adjective. See, it looks like it's a verb in the English, doesn't it? Or taught by God. But this is an adjective. And it's a compound word, theos, meaning... um, God and didasco means to teach. Translations so should be for you yourselves keep on being taught ones by God. That would that would describe it better than what you're seeing in the English because I mean in the New American Standard because in the New American Standard you say are taught by God taught certainly looks like it's a verb doesn't it? But it's not. It's an adjective. It's the nominative plural masculine adjective. So it would and it's in the um, did I say it was in the present tense? There's no tense to it like that. It just means that uh, for you yourselves, keep on being taught, uh, being the taught ones by God. Taught ones. See, that's an adjective describing taught ones. Yes, Cindy. Yeah, well, the Amy is keep on being. Yeah. See, it, it, this is completely different than what you have in the English. It's the, Amy is the present active indicative. That is, uh, keep on being. And then, instead of saying taught, it's the taught ones of God, because that would be describing what kind of ones you are, the taught ones, as an adjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, to love one another. This is what uh, they were taught. To love one another. And there you have agapao which is an infinitive present active, they were, continue, they were to continue to love one another. Then we have the next phrase, for indeed you do practice it. These believers already were practicing faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and charity. Y'all ever heard of that before? Have faith, hope, and charity. That's the way to live successfully. How do I know the Bible told me so? Y'all never heard that? Huh? Where have y'all been? Huh? (laughs) 
Y'all never heard faith, hope, and charity? Let me see your hand if you've heard it. Oh, okay. All right. Y'all just... Y'all need to save me and come along and sing along with me a little. You just leave me up here hanging. Love, hope, and char- of course, charity, meaning love. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3, let's look at that for just a minute. It says they, these believers were already practicing it. Well, how do we know? When you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. There you have love, hope, and charity. I mean faith, hope, and charity. In the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of God the Father. So they already had this. He said, indeed, you are practicing this. Paul was encouraging them to do more of what they were already doing so their love might increase and abound even more. And that's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion to eat and eat their own bread. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Oh, that's Second Thessalonians. Wait a minute. First Thessalonians. <laughs> okay. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you. So what he's looking for is an an increase in what they were already doing. So I'm taking the word then after this, do practice it, is the word poieo, P-O-I-E-O. It's a verb, present active indicative. It means to keep on doing this, to make or do something. The present tense means that they kept on practicing it. Brotherly love is not something you do that you only do when you are in the mood to be nice to other people. You know there are people like that. That they're nice to people when they're in a friendly mood. Am I looking at any? I've seen people who are really nice when they want to be, and sometimes they're not. It is always being thoughtful, loving, and kind, no matter what the circumstances are. That's what brotherly kindness or brotherly love is. Sometimes believers are rude, thoughtless, and unkind to others because they are angry or upset about something, but there's no legitimate excuse uh, for that at any time, for any of this. So what I'm saying is, this is a command we're to do it all the time. Now, we are nice people here, aren't we? Are are we nice people? Okay, good. Somebody said, yeah. I mean, we're we're not mean people, are we? Huh? We're not ill, are we? I mean, we're not surly, grumpy, hard-to-get-along-with people here, are we? Aren't we? If you had to characterize this church, if it says, okay, country Bible church is one or the other, nice or mean, you would say, check, nice, right? Hopefully. Okay, well, that's, that's all I'm trying to get out of you. 
is that we are a nice group of people. We're believers. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit. We have all these things going for us. And yet, I know that there are times, or have been times, and there will be times when you get about bent out of shape about someone that's in this church. And we're all nice people. I mean, we're, we're not known for uh, our crime, are we? What is my point? My point is we are to always be nice to one another, showing brotherly love, even when you're not in the mood. I've seen you sometimes not in the mood. And it's too easy for some people to excuse it. I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm upset. I don't care who likes it. I'm going to be mean to anybody gets in my way. That's just the way it's going to be. There are people in this church sitting and standing in this church. <laughs> Sorry, Ken just stood up at the wrong time. <laughs> We're nice people, and yet it's hard sometimes for us to fulfill this mandate of brotherly love. You might be preoccupied and you might be angry at someone else, but others have to take the brunt of that sometimes. How well do we know that in our own families? Huh? I suspect that most of the people in your immediate family are believers. And they're probably nice people also. But not always. And neither are you. And neither am I. So, what I'm saying is we have to be careful to not give ourselves permission to be rude and unthoughtful towards other people, not caring about them, because the Bible does not give us that freedom. It doesn't give us this latitude. As we're going to see that they were already being nice. They already had brotherly love. And we have Paul saying, I know that you... I don't have to write you about this. You know it already. In fact, you're practicing it. You're doing it. And you think, all right, he's going to give him a big high five. Way to go. What does he say? I want more. You can take it to a higher level. And you should never excuse your rude, thoughtless behavior to another believer. There is no excuse for it. These believers went beyond what was expected of them, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1 through 5. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for just a second. Second Corinthians chapter 8 is real easy to find in my Bible because it's broken right there. See? That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It just automatically falls open there, so I go right to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8... Verse 1 through 5. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Ah, what, is that? what does that read us into, the churches in Macedonia? What church that we are familiar with was in Macedonia? Thessalonica, right, as well as Berea and even Corinth. 
that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. What this is talking about is they had suffering, but they counted it joy, even their in their deep poverty, to give to others, as we'll see. Verse 3, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, voluntarily. And this is talking about remuneration. This is talking about money here. Begging us with much entreaty for the favor, meaning the privilege, of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, it's like I was telling you, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So they had given themselves over to the Lord and to these apostles and were begging for the privilege of giving to others when they were in deep poverty themselves. This is one way that believers manifest Brotherly love to one another. It's just not calling each other brother or sister. It manifests itself in a deep desire and a deep love towards one another to help in time of need. And that's what they were doing. And Paul said they even did it beyond what he even expected. So this is one of the way, ways of manifesting this love of these brothers. Then we have... The uh, end of the sentence here, it says, uh, Toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So this says that they were treating all the brethren with brotherly love, not just some of them. There were no cliques or groups or individuals who received better treatment than others. All the brethren. Some people are easier to love than others. But all people need to be loved. They need to be shown that people care about them. This coming Sunday, we're going to have our communion supper after. Well, we have the communion supper during the service, but afterwards we're having our fellowship dinner. And this is a great time to show your brotherly love to others. And... I think it's important that all of us be on the lookout for those who are kind of sitting over, no one's talking to them. Some people have a harder time communicating than others do. I've never had a hard time communicating with people. I just That's just me. I mean, I could go up to a rock and start talking. But others are very reserved. And we need to reach out to those kind of people. Those are the people that need your conversation the most. Those are the people that need to feel loved the most. And I know you may feel more comfortable talking with people that you always talk to, but that's not what this is about. This is about being thoughtful and showing and demonstrating your love to other people, sometimes just by talking to them. Find out what's going on with them. What's important in their life? Is there a need in their life? Or even a small talk, it doesn't matter. I hope that no one ever comes to this church and leaves thinking that no one really cared about them. 
I'm not talking about nosing into their business. I'm just talking about making conversation with them. Just let them know that we are all like-minded believers. We are the family of God. We're all ambassadors of the Most High. If we can't communicate with each other and show our love in a hundred different ways to each other, then something is drastically wrong. And it should be that a person who is growing in grace and knowledge and learning these doctrines, a byproduct of that should be that desire to be close to other people. Not, not just, this is not a lonely hearts club. It's not a, it's not a country club. It's not all about fellowship. But we have to strive and be alert to make others recognize that we have the capacity to love them. And sometimes that's no more than just going up and talking to them. We need to be alert to that. These believers went beyond even what Paul had anticipated. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10b. We went up to 10a. Remember, it stopped... I hope this is not that confusing to you, but I think it's more important to stick with the original language the way it is structured than sticking with these verses that arbitrarily they put numbers by. So the next sentence starts in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, I guess that would be 10a, huh? Is that 10a? I called the other 10A. This has to be 10B, I guess. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as you were, we, we, we told you, so that your daily life may win respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. We start out with, we urge you, brothers. Here we have our old friend. Y'all remember this word? How many times we have it? Parakaleo. P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E-O. It's present active indicative. It means to encourage. We should be encouraging one another to stay the course and to keep on keeping on. You know, life is a grind, isn't it? I mean, every day you get up and you have routine. You have to do things that just to keep going. You have to feed your body. You have to feed it food, but it also needs spiritual nourishment also. All of it takes energy. And sometimes people just get so down, they're not thinking of, they're not claiming God's promises and they just feel so low. We need to encourage these people. Sometimes just to stay the course, that it's worth it. Don't give up. When someone applies Bible doctrine, we should be commending them and praising them. You ever, especially, this goes double for children. Whenever you see a child applying doctrine, you should do everything but have a parade for them right then. They should be praised for learning doctrine and then applying doctrine. This is an encouragement. They'll want to do it all the more. And the kids don't have it so easy either. They, I get reports all the time of kids going out, and especially the young people here. I'm teaching them these doctrines, and they go out, and somebody says, oh, no, that's not true. It's this other way. And so they have to already be grounded in this, and when they do stand firm to, for the faith as, as best as they can, you need to encourage them and give them praise for that. And not only children, we all need to do that for each other. 
Encouragement. What comes easy for us is criticism. Encouragement, not so much sometimes. To do more and more. Is that what you want to hear? (laughs) Y'all don't look like you would receive this all that well. What I'm saying is you need to do more and more. And some of you look like, well, I'm right here. The water's up to here. I'm on my tiptoes and you're telling me to do more and more. I imagine some of the Thessalonian believers felt that way. How does our love for one another grow more and more? How? The difficulties believers have with one another are opportunities for us to grow in our love. Did you ever think of that? Huh? A lot of times you think, well, love grows when we're so nice to each other and we have no problems. We have a mutual admiration society going here. And that's fine. I mean, we should have that camaraderie and should have that rapport. But where the love really grows is when there's an issue. Now it's time to apply. Now it's not about just phileo love, brotherly love. It's time for agape type love, unconditional love. That's when it really grows. We must all be quick to switch to impersonal or unconditional love because we're all stinkers from time to time. Stinkers. I wish you could see your faces. I wish I had a. I just had. A, sometimes I wish I had a big mirror up here. I'm just called every one of you stinkers, and I got the mirror. I can see myself back there too. If that don't get you, maybe this will. Here it is. This little poem. To dwell above with the saints in love. Oh, that will be glory. But stay below with the saints I know. Well, that's another story. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad y'all can laugh. I'm so glad we're not so uptight that we don't recognize that we all are stinkers sometimes. And we have to acknowledge it. I mean, we acknowledge it to God. We have to just let things go. Boy, I tell you, believers can be so uptight. And we're all stinkers. And that's, that's a euphemism, stinker. I mean, you know, I like, like it, but I've got a lot worse that I could say. So, so that's an easy point, isn't it? To dwell above with the saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to stay below with the saints, I know, well, that's another story. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, let's see how much time we have here. Uh... One last verse 11. We'll just start uh, end with this part right here. It says, "Make it your ambition." This uh, word "ambition" is uh, an unusual word. It's philotimeomai, P-H-I-L-O-T-I-M-E-O-M-A-I. Kind of a mouthful. It's an infinitive. In fact, we have three infinitives in this verse. Uh, like to do this, to do something is an infinitive. Present active. And this, you know, have you noticed all the words that have the uh, philos in it, the first of the word? This one starts, uh, it's, we have philos, which means love, and time, that's not time. It's pronounced time in the Greek. And it means honor. It means to love or honor something, to aspire, to have an ambition, or to make something a goal. This word is used three times in the New Testament. Uh... Here you have it right here in Romans 15:20. I aspired 
or it was my goal to preach the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We have it as our ambition, whether at home or are absent, to be pleasing to Him. Aren't these good goals? Aren't these great ambitions they have? This is the three ways that this word, phileo tomeomai, uh, is used. And then you have it here in our verse. To lead a quiet life. Boy, I can't wait to teach this. Well, how much time do I have left? Okay, I've got a little bit. Uh, how many of you want to lead a quiet life? Come on, I want to see some hands. Huh? So some of you are wanting to live a rowdy life, I guess, huh? A noisy life, is that it? I mean, I got about ten hands that went... I want to live a quiet life. But what does a quiet life mean? First of all, we have the Greek word here for quiet. There is no life here. It says quiet life, but it just means uh, uh, to lead quietness or quietly. And we have to put live in there to live quietly. We have hesio uh, kazo. That actually is uh, H-E-S-Y-C-H-A-Z-O, but the Y is actually a U. And you have the rough breathing, which I can't show on the computer. That's where the H comes in. So it should be Hesu Kazomai, or Kazo. It's an infinitive. Again, it means to be quiet, to still, to be quiet, still, live quietly, to be silent or not speaking. This is what I like right here. Look at this. (laughs) This is the King James Version. And that you study to be quiet. (laughs) That's the King James Version of this part of the verse. Let me tell you, I know people that need to do more studying. (laughs) Keeping our mouth shut does not come naturally. We must study to learn how to do it. This word is used five times in the New Testament. See, this word, it can mean to be quiet. In other words... Schlesenzidemut means. <laughs> Anybody speak German? <laughs> it means to keep our mouth closed, to keep it shut. It can mean that. But it also can mean just to, to live a life that is not full of drama, that's not full of uh, a, a bunch of antipathy. So it can be either one. But I like that King James. Uh, Keeping my mouth shut doesn't come naturally. We must study to learn how to do it. Here's, here's how this word is used, these verses. In Luke 14, 4, this word quiet that I'm talking about, says, but they remained silent. Now, what would that mean? That means keep our mouth shut. At, uh, Luke 23, 56, and rested on the Sabbath day. Sabbath day. Now, that would mean not necessarily keep your mouth shut. It just means... They're resting. They have a peaceful, uh, solitary uh, type life. Acts eleven eighteen. And when they heard this, they quieted down. What does that mean? They they were in a clamor and they just. How many times? I know most of you have had children. So how many times have you tell, told the ch- children what? Calm down. Simmer down. What does that mean? Shh, put a lid on it. Acts twenty one fourteen, and since he would not be persuaded, 
we fell silent remarking the will of the Lord be done. Does anybody know what Acts 21 is about there in that context? This is real important. I, I just have a few minutes and I've got to end right here. But this, you can't pass this up. This is when Paul got into, um, I guess you could say, temporary reversionism. When he was, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He got emotional about his people. And it was not the Lord's will for him to go. And the people were saying, don't go, Paul. Don't go. And he says, I'm going if, if, even if it kills me. God sent a, a prophet, Agabus, and wrapped a cord around him, or wrapped a shash around him. He says, you go to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to you. You better stay out of Jerusalem. He did not listen to them. But what, look what this says. This is very important. Now, look. And since he would not be persuaded, Paul would not be persuaded no matter what they said not to go to Jerusalem. It was not the Lord's will. He was putting himself and everyone in danger. Look what they... We fell silent. That same word. What does it mean? There's a time after you've given all the information and you've given the truth, you've given the divine viewpoint, and they will not hive it. It's time for you to fall silent. And look what, look what this... The will of the Lord be done. That's what you have to do sometimes. You, 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 give it, you give it your best shot, like they were doing for Paul. But when they will not have it, when people will not listen, you've got to back off, you've got to shut up, and just say, all right, the Lord's will be done. That's a good lesson for us to remember and a good lesson, good point to close on. So let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. Every jot, every tittle is important. We need to hear every bit of this. We need to hear it often, repeatedly, so that it will sink in. So that we will recognize that we are commanded to have this brotherly type of love always to all people, to all believers, especially believers. We pray that you will help us to see the need that we can fill in and show others the type of love that you have commanded of us that you will give a caring heart, give us a sincere desire to minister to these people who also need to recognize that there are others who care for them with this type of love, this brotherly love, and that we always have to have that agapao type love, unconditional love. Help us to have that discernment so we'll know when to be quiet and just let your will be done. We thank you for reminding us of these things. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.